Lord, Lord God in heaven, you have been so good to us. Your merciful kindness toward us, your steadfast love endures forever. You displayed us the depths of your riches and grace, not only in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ for us while we were still sinners, but even in the, just the day-by-day ordinariness of life. Lord, for that we are grateful. Father, we pray that um, you would be with us as we get into uh, Pelagianism, as we look at it, as we talk about it. Uh, guide us and help us, Lord, that we would grow from it and that we would grow, most of all, more amazed your go- kindness and goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we are in the heresy zone. Do, 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 do. So there's a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It's a dimension as vast as space and timeless as infinity. It's the middle ground between light and shadow, the pit of man's fears and some of his knowledge, the dimension of imagination is also what we area we call the heresy zone. So our aims, anybody, can you, anybody give, me, give me any of the aims, please? Okay. Okay. Great. Okay. Awareness, stability, growth. Anybody else? Perfect. Not being puffed up discipling others, right? Being able to answer them and talk to them, okay? Anybody else? That's good. Awesome. You guys get a gold star, and if you work at it, you might get a chocolate chip cookie or something. So yeah, so thinking about 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, right? So ultimately, that we're able to be aware, to keep stable, and to grow. If you remember in 2 Peter 3, Peter just said there are some who are unstable people that twist the writings of Paul and the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. And then Peter goes on to say, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So knowing that this happens, right? Not being surprised because we've been apprised. Not being surprised that heresy shows up. Right? We're actually to be prepared and not allow ourselves to be carried away by the error of lawless people and lose our stability. So be aware, keep stable, and grow. Also become familiar with the aspects of our early history by understanding several of the major heretical movements and moments from the first five centuries. Uh, reflect on our own day and place in history. And then uh, be equipped to explain to others what we believe and why it's important. Okay, and so... You said, you said several of those things as we were asking about the aims. Excellent. Okay. So the plan has been, we started out with what is heresy and how to think about it. And we worked through all of these. The Ebionites, all of this is the first five centuries. Uh, the Ebionites, Marcion, Docetism, Gnosticism, Montanism, Arianism, Modalism, Manicheanism, Donatism, Nestorianism, that's what we did last week, and this week is Pelagianism. And then uh, I've added a last class next week, is a review and application, We're going back through and then reworking some of this um, for us so we conclude, we'll conclude the class next week. And so, I'm going to deal with some delinea- delineations, defining Pelagianism, discuss modern manifestations, and deliberate on biblical responses. And I hope you found this helpful, dealing with the modern manifestations. How does this show, these things show up today? I think that that's really helpful to realize that um, they're not new. 
right? Nothing, I mean, really, it's just not new. It's been around for, all these have been around for a while, so. All right, most of the heresies, we've, as we've noticed, are answering our Lord's question, who do you say that I am? And the answer they give to that question shapes how they view many other topics. Some of the heresies, two of them specifically, um, um, Montanism and Donatism, uh, were focused more on perceived failures and weaknesses in the church, but it ends up, they still ended up coming back and answering this question, but that was their main focus. And then as we saw like yesterday or last week with the Nestorianism, others are not so cut and dried as they appeared. There was uh, a lot of drama behind it that actually uh, created this moment. So there we go. So let's talk about Pelagius. He was a real live human being. He was born in the middle of the 4th century. He was born in in, uh, Britain. And uh, those Brits, they always cause issues. What's up? Anyways, he's born in England, he's bo- or uh, modern-day England, born in Britain. He was a simple monk, just simply traveling around, going along. Um, he regarded faith as hardly more than a theoretical belief which motivated a moral action. Okay, that's just his program in a nutshell. Okay, he regarded faith as hardly more than a theoretical belief which motivated more, a moral action. We'll talk about these in a little bit more detail. Uh, most of his uh, stuff that he's known for is because he actually reacts to Augustine. He reacts to some things that Augustine said in his confessions, and he becomes very vociferous. But Pelagius was not really the front, front runner of Pelagianism. It was another fellow who took up Pelagius' cause called, um, uh, I can't remember his name. It starts with a C. It's um, um, Kalidus or something like that. But he takes up Pelagius' cause and becomes the big mouth. For Pelagianism, okay? And so, uh, just like with Nestorius, Nestorius may not have been a Nestorian, Pelagius was not a real good Pelagian sometimes. I mean, it's really kind of a funny deal, the human side of this. Uh, he was more concerned with the ethical side of Christianity than the dogmatic, okay? And if you want to put it in modern parlance, he really was more concerned, or very concerned, about what he could perceive as social justice. I hate to put it that way, but that's a simple way to put it, Okay? And um, uh, both socially as well as individually for Christians and specifically for those who followed him, who listened to him. So as I said, Pelagius came from Britain to Rome and he seems to have spent most of his time in Rome. He actually uh, won over very quickly a lot of the, the, the uh, hierarchy, the aristocracy, and he won over... Um, uh, a lot of the clerical hi- hierarchs, the, the archbishops, bishops, and all that stuff, he won over several of them. By the way, the reason, one of the things about Pelagius is really funny, even though we'll see as we get to the end, he's condemned as a heretic in one of the church councils. There are a small group of Eastern Orthodox theologians who are trying to reclaim Pelagius and say he was not a heretic, and, which is interesting because even in the Eastern Orthodox, the rest of the guys go, what are you talking about? It's pretty funny, so but you'll hear, you'll run across it on occasion if you're listening. So this is from Peter Brown. Peter Brown wrote a book called Through the Eye of the Needle. It's a huge book. You can use it for a self-defense weapon. It's so big, right? You can put it in your ladies, you can put it in your purse and nobody will mess with you. I mean, wing. Right? It's, it's a big book. It's about how the church dealt with finances and giving and saw wealth and poverty. 
uh, in the third, fourth, and fifth centuries. And so Peter Brown is a is a is a uh, very popular, very important church historian. Okay. And he writes in this book, he talks about Pelagius. He says, quote, Furthermore, it seemed as if the leading Christian family of Rome, the Anici, or Anici or whatever, you've got to say it like this, I think, Anici, right? That the Anici had supported Pelagius. Religious factionalism linked to the Christian aristocracy and its clients had become a major feature of upper class life in Rome. I just, that's an intriguing statement. What is, just look at that question for a minute, or that statement for a minute, and what does that tell you? What are some things that, that his observation tells you if he's, tr- if he's right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They were the gatekeepers as to who was, uh, who was the golden-haired boy, so to speak, and who wasn't, things like that, right? So there's that. What else? That, that, that's interesting that they, they had that kind of voice. What else do you notice? And it's not stated, but when you think about it, you go, oh, got it. So the aristocracy was often had tons of slaves and servants, so they didn't do a lot of work themselves. So what are they involved in? Thinking. they got too much time on their hands. Right? And so it's interesting that here we are in the 4th and 5th century and they're, they're actually the fuel for, um, 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 where is it? Here it is, religious factionalism. They're actually siding with this group because they've got more time on their hands than others. And so they're actually listening and paying attention and, or whatever and they're siding with this group against that group and so forth. Yes, John. Well, they were, yeah, they were donating their money to the guys that, that resonated with them. It's a great point, okay? And so all of that's in there. So there's kind of the human side of the story. I always like to look at the human side of the story, the backdrop besides just the academic stuff. So, so he's gotten himself into a powerful mixture there at Rome. This is kind of his overall travel through his life, uh, coming from Britain to Rome, then to Carthage, which is in North Africa, and then he comes over to Jerusalem and other places and disappears or dies. But just to give you a sense of where he, he, he was, where he was. So here's part of his, I'm um, getting now into definitions, okay? Just defining a little bit about Pelagianism, okay? So any questions before I start working on that? All right, so... Um, According to Pelagius, Adam's fall only injured Adam, no one else, okay? It only injured Adam, did not injure all of humanity, right? All of humanity did not suffer from that in a sense of guilt or any of those things. So it was only about Adam. Uh, Children come into the world in the same condition in which Adam was before the fall. What's the, anybody know what the technical term for that kind of thing is? Well, yeah, so it's an innocence... Um, yeah, you start looking for age accountability. Um, yes, who said that? Bless you. Tabla rasa, the blank slate. Anybody know what big thinker was instrumental behind the American War of Independence and many of, their, many of our founding fathers who actually promoted the tabla rasa? And he was actually a Presbyterian minister. John Locke. 
Okay, that whole notion of you come in as a blank slate. Okay, and so any wrongs that come are because it's written on the blank slate. Does that make sense? All right, I'm going to tell you, this is really personal to me because this actually resonates or it echoes a place that I came from, you know, right? The sect that I came out of, they actually tracked with this almost item by item. And they were started by Presbyterian ministers, Alexander and Thomas Campbell, okay? So humanity neither dies in consequence of Adam's fall nor rises again in consequence of Christ's resurrection. So if that's the case, what does that mean about death, for example? And think about, think about, think about the Garden of Eden before Satan slithers up in there. What does that mean then about the Garden of Eden, about Adam and Eve and all of that? No. Humanity neither dies in consequence of Adam's fall or rises in consequence of Christ's resurrection. It's the fact that death was already there. Everybody dies. And so grace is only keeping you from dying, right? Uh, unbaptized children as well as others. And you've got to put this in a Roman Catholic context here for a minute. But unbaptized children as well as others are saved. In a, in, by this point in uh, Catholicism, or in the church at the time, baptism was essential to wash away original sin. You had to be baptized to be saved. And so that statement in that context means, oh, they're saved anyways. All of them are saved anyways. Okay? Um, you don't need to do those things to be there. Yeah, I mean, you have to be sort of, but yeah. The law, as well as the gospel, leads to the kingdom of heaven. The law, as well as the gospel. Anybody is just, just, just kind of popping fuses maybe a little bit for somebody? Yeah, this is, this is a huge problem. And to think that he had the aristocracy in Rome on his side, and to think that he actually had uh, higher clerics on his side, bishops and so forth, beginning to side with him. Okay? It's really troubling. Even before Christ, there were sinless men. It's possible to become a sinless person. Yeah, it's, it's possible to be, a, to be a sinless man, yeah, or be a sinless person. Um, I'm trying to go through my head how he would have put it. Um, yes, you could, you could potentially remain sinless all of life, but the likelihood is that you would fall at some point, but then you could become sinless. And so doing, doing certain works expiate then the past sins, and now you're sinless. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, according to Pelagianism, grace is to be understood as referring to the natural human faculties. Right? Everybody has grace. If you've got any brains, if you've got any smarts, if you've got any virtues or, or habits that are decent, all that is grace. Right? And there's a sense, by the way, never forget this, that, that there's a sense in which many of the heresies are right-ish. I think I'll put ish on the end. Are right-ish. But it's when they go too far, you go, yeah, but. You have to say, you almost have to say that when you're going through the heresies. Yeah, 
but, right, you're going off the deep end, okay? Sec yes. Well, so if, yeah, I mean, there's tons of theological arguments to this uh, that he would lay out. Yeah, he would try to use, yeah, yeah, he was always using scripture. Yeah, right, and we're going to talk about some of that in a minute, but, but remember, he's responding actually to Augustine, right? So Augustine's confessions, for example, when he says, uh, command what you will and give what you command, right? That really set him off. Right? No, 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 we can do this. Right? And that's where he begins, he starts there. By the way, this will impact, as you've already started noticing, it impacts what he, his answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? It's already impacting that and vice versa. Right? What I've always said is as you hear something, maybe push back a little bit and find, go back further and find out what they're saying about Jesus because that actually exposes a lot about what's going on. So secondly, as an external guidance, grace is an external guidance or enlightenment provided by, for humanity by God. I remember a minister that said to me one time, he said, look, God goes 99% of the way, but you've got to go 1%. Grace is just a hand up. Anybody ever heard that? Grace is just a hand up. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. There's a ballot out there, right? God's giving you this ballot. God said yes for you. Satan says yes. Now you've got to put your own little check mark on the ballot. Which way will you go? Right? All that stuff. Okay? Huh? All right. So then also grace informs us as to what our moral duties are, but it does not assist us in performing them. This first part is true. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and following. Grace teaches us to deny teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. The second part of that statement is not true. Here's a great example of the yes, but. Yeah, but that last statement is off. Does that make sense? You can say grace informs us. It does. Paul says so, okay? Um, but this is this last part, not assisting us in performing them. And you can stop me, by the way, and ask questions as we go along here. So Alistair McGrath, and I really appreciate his book, Heresy. I, I highly recommend it to you. Some of you have bought it. <clears throat> I highly recommend it. I really appreciate it. Here's this, uh, here's this uh, fellow who's got a Ph.D. in microbiology or something. He's got some kind of a medical degree. And then he became, a, became, a, became a, uh, uh, he may have already been a Christian, but then he goes and gets his seminary degree, gets his Ph.D. in theology, and he's, so he's kind of high, in my mind, he's kind of a highbrow guy, but he really writes really well, very easy to read. But I appreciate that here's this British guy bringing up, and all the way through his book, he sneaks in and says, by the way, Pelagianism is a heresy too. Pelagianism is a heresy too. Pelagianism is a heresy too. You know, so he just keeps bringing it back up, which I really appreciate. But here's, and you may remember this quotation when we were looking at the Donatists. I used this quotation, so here's an example. There's a clear link which, off, which often passed unnoticed between uh, the Pelagian view of humanity and the Donatist view of the church. Both rest on the belief that we can become what we believe we ought to be, that there is no place for failure or weakness, 
and still less for other human traits that point to our frailty. Both set out demands for an idealized humanity and hence idealized believers that simply cannot be achieved in practice. I just want to bring that in to point out that the desire, Donatus' desire for the pure church in the here and now, the perfect church, is built upon the same foundation of Pelagius' building the pure man. You could be the sinless person. It's built on the same foundation, and McGrath brings that out, and I appreciate that. Any questions up to this point? Okay, moving right along. So here's a, a brief contrast between Augustine, what Augustine's laying out in Scripture, and what Pelagius is saying. So we'll just start from here. I'll just read Pelagius, and then we'll read Augustine. So it starts from, with human freedom and liberty of choice. Christ is only a teacher or example. So already you see how what it's saying about Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Here's the answer. Okay? Conversion is a gradual maturing growth uh, grounded in the common sense with no perception of divine things, conforms, to script, conforms Scripture to human reason. On Augustine's side, starts with divine grace and man's bondage and sin. Christ is priest and king. Conversion is miraculous and complete transformation. Uh, it's grounded in, regener- uh, grounded in regenerate reason which breaks through the limits of nature and subjects human reason to the Scripture. Any, any, as you read those, any just thoughts that come to your head like, that sounds really familiar, or something like that, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Yeah, so, uh, and there's not... This sta- here's another one of those yeah buts. This statement is not a problem by itself if it doesn't negate anything else, right? Because Christ is our teacher, right? He is also a moral example. Paul uses the cross, he uses Christ's incarnation, and he uses, his, he uses the cross as a moral example that's built upon substitutionary atonement. And so he says, let this mind be in you, this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being the eternal Son of God, you know, became man and so forth and was humble and humble, his humility came all the way to obedience to the cross, right? So there's a, va- there's a rightness to that statement, but he strips out the rest of this. Yes, the only part is what gets him in trouble. Okay, yes? Yes. Yes. Yes, this resonates highly with achievers. Huh? And legalists, because legalists are primarily achievers, right? I've arrived, right? Okay. Yes, I pressed all the code buttons, got all the combination I'm in. Yeah, yeah. 
Right, very few people would call themselves Pelagians. They would actually be, as we note them, note, note, note them as semi-Pelagians. Right? So you have, I mean, there's never a pure heresy. There's all this other stuff that goes on, right? So that's what you would call them. That's why you see that being brought in, because they know they've got to say that if they're going to be Christian, right? Okay, anybody else? On your left? Right here, this one. Conform Scripture to human reason. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Good job, Bob. Yeah, so this last one, conform Scripture to human reason, looks like a lot of liberal trends in, in Christianity, right? So it's just like we noticed with Nestorianism. Somebody asked last week, you know, how does Nestorianism show up today? And then we, we all went, oh, this is modern theological liberalism in so many ways. The same thing with, as you get here, full-blown Pelagianism would seem to lend that direction, okay? And, or, or at least support that liberalism. It may not lead to liberalism, but they may already be there, and then they come up find Pelagians. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. No, that's a great point. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's all part of the rationalism and the enlightenment that came in, that, and and you have that whole stream just continue to fuel. I always this is my little ditty that I always put in: is if it's going to make sense, if it's going to be, it's got to make sense to me. Right. That's that's the notion. Right. Okay. Good. All right. So Augustine begins to answer. Okay. And so I, I've stolen some of these slides from other different slide presentations. So. That's why they're in different colors, so you'll know that these are not my creation. I just stole them from others, okay? Um, so the sinner can still choose between various alternatives, right? So that's, there's no denial of that. You have, you have to always keep that in mind. We are Presbyterians. We have a whole chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith on free will. We believe that free people have free will. They freely choose according to their nature, Right? So the next time I hear a Presbyterian say, we don't believe in free will, I'm going to hug them. <laughs> we do, okay? Until they can't breathe. And so a sinner does choose between various alternatives. There's no doubt of that. But all of these are sin. All the choices are sin if we're out, if we're out of grace, if we're not redeemed. All of these are sin. And the one alternative that is not open is to cease sinning. Once the fall came... We cannot cease from sinning, okay? So let me go back. Those of you who remember your, your Latin, okay? So in grace, anybody remember what are we in grace? Right? It's a passe peccare phrases. Anybody remember that? Okay, so uh, non passe peccare, passe peccare. It's possible for us to sin, possible for us not to sin. That was in the Garden of Eden. Then after the fall, non passe, see, uh, not able to sin. See, non posse picare. I'm getting my posses messed up. Not able to not sin. Non posse non picare. Okay? Once the fall came, non posse non picare. None of us are able to not sin. And then with grace, it's almost like a restoration in a sense 
of the Garden of Eden, we're able now to not sin. Okay? So that's what they're going through here. And then in, 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 in eternity, we will be like God, who is the freest being of all, who is not able to sin. Think about that one. Freest being of all, he is not able to sin. And that's where we will one day be. Okay? So that's what this is laying out. So in Augustine's words, before the fall, we were free to both sin and not sin, but between the fall and redemption, the only freedom left us is the freedom to sin. When we are redeemed, the grace of God works in us, leading our will from the miserable state in which, we found it, uh, which it found itself to a new state in which freedom is restored so that we are now free both to sin and not to sin. And then lastly, when in heaven, we shall be free, but only free not to sin. That sounds like a gymnastic. It's not. It's just making the case as you go along. By the way, I had a great conversation with one time. I was teaching uh, the daughter of a Roman Catholic who was a Latin Mass Roman Catholic, one of, the, one of that group, Pope Pius, the Society of Pius X or whatever. And he found out when I was talking about this, I was actually talking about this from St. Augustine, and he got mad and said, now wait. We're free. I said, well, let's go back and look at your uh, catechism. Maybe he's using the old, um, I think it's the old Boston catechism from the early 1900s. And I pulled it open and walked through it, and it's just sheer Augustinianism when it comes to this stuff. And it stated the exact same thing. So I'm just saying exactly what he's saying. Oh, it was great. It was a great moment. But in all of this, we freely choose according to our nature. It's God who actually, that's what grace is about and redemption is about. God liberates us. He draws us into Christ. He makes us new creatures. And so now we have, we still choose uh, according to our nature and so forth. Okay, any questions on this up to this point? This is Augustinianism. This is, a lot of this comes out, by the way, in his huge tome called The City of God. And Thomas Boston, a Puritan, an early Puritan, lays it out in his, his work. I can't remember any of his work, but Thomas Boston lays this out specifically in this way as well. Okay, let's move on then. The sinner can still choose between various alternatives, but... Wait, did I already read that? Oh, well, there you go. I was going too fast, uh, putting this together. So the controversy would last for several years. So the controversy between Augustine and Pelagius would last for several years before it was finally rejected. In fact, it took up it took up most of Augustine's time and brain power for the rest of his life. He spent a lot of time writing against Pelagianism. Okay? Uh, Pelagianism simply did not take into account the terrible hold of sin on human will, nor the corporate nature of sin, uh, which is manifest even in infants before they had a, have a, any opportunity to sin for themselves. And Augustine's view did not gain wide acceptance either. He was accused of being an innovator at a time, right? People didn't like what they heard either way sometimes, okay? But in 529, at the Synod of Orange, uh, it upheld Augustine's doctrine of, primate, of the primacy of grace and the process of salvation, but left aside the more, the more radical consequences of that doctrine, and so, as Peter Brown goes on to say, Pelag- there it is, Calaisus. That was Pelagius's mouthpiece, was Calaisus. So Pelagius and Calaisus were not condemned only uh, so as were not condemned only so as to please the Africans, but also for having led 
They were not, not condemned just because they pleased the Africans. They also were condemned because they led to a disruptive faction in Rome. Go back to that first early slide, right? And remember, what is the root word for heresy? Anybody remember? What is the root meaning of heresy? Separation, schism, her- it, it's, it's factionalism, right? All heresies lead to some form of factionalism. They were presented in the imperial edict so the Pelagians were presented in the imperial edict that came out and, and gave its approval to the, um, to the synod uh, as a group that claimed on the basis of their perfectionist theology to be superior to everybody else. What a great political statement. That was funny. All right. So any questions at this point? There's far more you could say about Pelagianism. The whole desire for Pelagius, just to give him his due is that he was afraid that Augustine's, and this sounds very contemporary, he was afraid that Augustine's overemphasis, or what he considered overemphasis on grace, would mean that people then would not be try to be holy or try to grow in sanctification. That was his initial concern. And so as he began to work it out, as Moose was asking about that earlier, as he began to work it out, uh, it becomes more and more systematized, but it's more systematized by, Cala- uh, by Celestius, or whatever, however you pronounce his name it wasn't necessarily Pelagius, okay? So it gets systematized in that way. And so it's a reaction. And that's what you hear. I mean, you hear that often today, the same thing. You hear the same charge. Well, if that's true, then people won't have any reason to go want to be closer to Jesus or more like Jesus, whatever. You hear the same stuff. Um, So that was to give him his due. That's what Pelagius was most concerned about. But it's where he went with that, and he wouldn't listen to Augustine, you know, um, it just got worse. He just kept digging a deeper hole. And Calistius helped him grab the shovel and dig deeper. Yes? Yes! How does that boast my self-esteem? Yes, right. By the way, just as a side note, I have two friends. We went to uh, get our doctorates together, and then after we graduated, some years later, they both got together and went to listen to a modern German theologian. I think it was uh, Jürgen Moltmann, who was in Chicago, and he was giving this presentation. And so it's all these folks that were there. It was wonderful. And then there was this Q&A period at the end. And so somebody got up, thought they were really brilliant, and they said, uh, 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 Dr. Moltmann, who would you say is the patron saint of America? And without skipping a beat, Moltmann said, oh, that's easy, Pelagius. I thought it was pretty, pretty perceptive on his part, right? Okay. All right, any questions? So where do you see modern manifestations of Pelagianism? This is easy. Come on, come on, come on. Everywhere. Okay, that's the end of that one. Let's move on, right? It's in the drink. It's right. It's everywhere. So it's, think about, when I talk about folk religion, this feeds into what I'm talking about, folk religion, right? This is the common stuff you pick up on the street and you pick up even in some of the best churches. You can pick it up because people bring folk religion with them. It doesn't matter if they're Catholic, Orthodox, Protestants, Presbyterians, Baptists. They bring it with them and it's no surprise when you run across it because you run across it everywhere okay yes exactly which is this fits 
Yes, yes, blame shifting, yes. That's right, self-achievement and shifting the blame. That is the American way. So the modern manifestations there, I mean, I think that's, that's a good observation. When I, was in the, when I was in the Church of Christ, I mean, they denied, and this was started by two Presbyterian ministers from Ireland, a father-son team, Alexander, Thomas and Alexander Campbell. They denied original sin. They said, you know, we come into the world as a tabla rasa. They were heavily influenced by John Locke, read him a lot. We come into the world as tabla rasa. There's no sin that's person, or that, you know, that we're not condemned. We become sinners. So there's this age of accountability. I don't know if that was already in the air at the time, but they definitely promoted the idea of age of accountability. Uh, and grace is really a hand up. I mean, they went right down the list, like they were reading Pelagius and saying, yeah. Right? And that was horrible. And so I was in a church history class as a young Christian, and I'm reading Chadwick's little bitty penguin uh, church history book. I had to read for this church history class. And when it came to Pelagius, it says, oh, by the way, here's the six planks of Pelagianism. It went through one, two, three, four, five, six. And I went, that's us. It was a revelatory moment, to say the least. Anything else up to this point? Anything? Yes. So, some, um, so the way it would look at the time, and this is, this is, I'll give you, this is a couple of examples. You can read Peter Brown if you want to read that big book, and he lays a lot of this out. Uh, he doesn't put it at the feet of Pelagius, but he lays out how this ended up working out. So, they would dedicate their monies before they died and leave, not leave their families necessarily destitute, but they would dedicate their monies to building churches and monasteries and so forth. But there were several who actually emancipated all their slaves on a dime. Boom. And they had thousands of slaves. Now, what does that do to slaves in that moment, in that instant? Leaves them destitute. They're on their own. They have no way to make money. Their job is gone. Think about when a corporation shuts the door tomorrow and nobody saw it coming. There are thousands of employees, right, that are just like, what do I do now, right? When, slave, when, it, when that happens, this is why well, I'm thankful that slavery did not end in an instant because it would have been a social implosion. It would have destroyed the world, okay, because Rome was built on the back of slaves. But here were Christians, with this, especially this Pelagius notion, big supporters of Pelagius, who said, oh, well, we're going to do the best thing we can. We're going to emancipate all of our slaves. Good riddance. And then what they did is they ended up impoverishing people who were used to at least getting two meals a day and getting clothes and having a vocation and had a shelter over their head. They just kicked them all out on the street. Thousands, all at once. Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's probably very accurate across the board, across the spectrum along that lines. And so, yeah, that's a great observation. Anybody else up to this point? So let's talk about a biblical responses then. So just, I mean, I, we could probably spend four or five classes on biblical responses, but can you just quickly, in a nutshell, give one or two, just pick one of the things that were brought up and just say, here's what the Bible actually says about that. Anybody? Let's, try, let's just start with sin. Let's start with Adam's fall. To use the old New England primer, in Adam's fall, we sinned all, right? So think about that. Where is that in Scripture? Is it in Scripture? Where? Romans? Chapter 5, what? Chapter 3, yeah. How about chapter 5, right? Uh, talks about um, uh, death came into the world and, uh, because of sin, right? Through Adam's sin, and so death passed upon all for that all sinned. And it's a past tense verb, all sinned. It's a past tense heiress verb. But anyways, it's something that's been accomplished before. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. The heart of man was deceitful always. Yeah, yeah, all that. Yes, very good. Okay. I mean, Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart and try the mind, give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Yeah, Romans 5.12, good. Oh, yeah, yeah, Romans 3. That's what Cindy, I think, was talking about. There's none who does good, no, not one. None who does righteous, no one seeks after God. And he's just quoting all these psalms when he's saying all this, right? Oh, yes. Romans 7. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. So there's all this you can see. You can see very clearly how biblical Augustine's position was versus Pelagius, right? I'm thinking, let's just go with this a minute for, for just a minute too. Because Tabla Rasa was a, was a big shin kicker when I finally dawned on me what was going on there. So if, if Romans 5.12 and others are not right, then that means that when my daughter started lying at one and a half years old, I, somehow I was implicated as writing that on the empty slate of her life. Now, parenting is already guilt-ridden as it is. And I was done. I was burnt to a crisp when I realized what that was actually saying, right? So it, there is a comfort in the bad news, Romans 5.12. There is a comfort there that, oh, this is in the world from, from Genesis 3. I didn't have to teach my kids to lie. It's already there. They're already manipulators and all those things, right? It's not, you know, it's not necessarily us. We just simply, in our own sins, we simply just show them how to do it better. You know what I mean? Come on, wake up. All right, what else? Any other biblical responses? Yes. Yes, that's um, right. Right. 
Yeah, yeah, right. And therefore, like, that actually changes things. Yeah. It's not just how much work can I do. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that would be, yeah, I think that's one of the really valuable things that I've been working with as well. Yeah. There's a lot of really good news that comes out of showing how sad you really are. Yes. Preach it. That's exactly right. One of the things I would say about Augustine and Calvin both, both of them were hypersensitive to making sure that the glory and goodness of God was up front and center stage everywhere at every moment, right? So all of their, all of Calvin and Augustine talking about predestination, all that, it was not to try to beat people down. It was simply bringing up just what, what uh, Caitlin just mentioned, how big God is and how good God really is. And he's the center of all things. And if you move off of that, if you move towards a Pelagian way, it becomes more and more what Randy was talking about. Look at what wonderful things I've done. God just gave me a hand, right? And so both Augustine and Calvin were hugely, deeply concerned with emphasizing the glory and the majesty and the centrality of God, which shows you the goodness of God, okay? So that's a corrective for us because sometimes we use Calvinist doctrine as a sledgehammer to beat people with. And it should never be a sledgehammer it should always be filled with good news. It's got to have bad news. What's bad news for some is good news for others. It's got to have the bad news, and then you realize, oh, this is really good news. Right? And that's how you should always seek to go with all that. So, Anybody else on biblical responses? Okay, there's more we could say uh, about, like I said, about Pelagianism, but as we think about what we've heard with all this in mind, how does this impact our confidence in God and His actions? we got some time, so now you can answer. How does this impact your confidence in God and His actions? If you can contrast that biblical Augustinian perspective from Pelagius, how does that impact your, your confidence in God and His actions? There you go. That's a good score right there. What she said. So when I was getting, when I was getting examined for my ordination, so Ligon Duncan was examining us in Mississippi Valley Presbyterian, and there were six of us. And he goes, uh, okay, I want you from the scripture to give me the five points of Calvinism, tulip. So, and then he starts with me, total depravity. My mind went blank. I couldn't even remember what books were in the Bible. It just happened. It, it was a terrifying moment. And then he looks at me and he's just like, okay, whatever. He says, well, I'll move on and we'll come back to you. And then the next guy says, oh, that's easy. And he starts rattling off these passages. And I go, Pastor Duncan, Pastor Duncan, what he said, what he said. <laughs> Score. And he just kept right on going. It was great. So what she said is great. That's a good answer. All right. How does it impact our relationships? If you're not concerned about perfectionism and look at all the things I've done, but you're enamored by all the things that give you confidence in God and His goodness and His grace, how does that impact your relationships? How, yeah, you can care about them, right? doesn't have to be about me. You can, who said that? Oh, Glenn, yeah, you can show grace to others. Yeah, right, right. Okay, good. So how does this impact maybe our devotions and our worship? So we get ready to go into the the sanctuary in a little bit, how is, that, how is that already going to impact, could it impact worship? Yes. Okay? And I hope that when we go in, you all go in with that anticipation. Right? Yeah. 
So we have a confession of sin and we have that moment to actually quietly become honest with God. And it's okay. How does that impact your assurance of salvation? That's right. I had somebody ask me the other day, what do you base your assurance on? I said, well, it ain't me. It's not my experience. And I've had a lot of experiences. It's all because of how faithful God is and what He's done and what He's promised, right? How does it impact uh, your perceptions of our humanness? This actually should go up here with the relationships ones. But how does it impact your, your perception of our humanness? What should you never... You can be disappointed all day long, but what should you never be surprised about? Sin. Even in your own kids. Well, now you've gone for preaching a medal of Mike. Well, yes, right. Yeah, 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 right, 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 right. So if you think you're okay because you think I'm okay, well, I'm not okay, so that means you ain't either, right? That's right. Right, so that we can be, as Cindy was, uh, and Glenn was saying earlier, we can be gracious, we recognize... Oh, we are a fallen peoples, right? And it's by grace alone that we're saved. And so, you know, sometimes, I don't know about the rest of you, but we have high expectations for all of our kids, always did, and our kids would never be like your kids. Just trust me, right? And then they would act just like your kids, and we'd be just devastated with disappointment. Yes, yes. (laughs) That's exactly right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, how does it impact our insight into the ways heresies form and what to look out for in our own hearts? How does it impact um, your insight, our insight into ways that heresies form and what to look out for in our own hearts? Yeah, well, yeah. Always check yourself. Am I overemphasizing something that's beautiful in its context, but now it could become something else? Right? That's a good one. What else? Huh? Pride? Uh-huh. Issue is control. Yes. Yes. Yeah, right. Whatever the issue is, the issue is control. Good. Yes. We, sometimes we ask that when people join the church. Sometimes I always tell them, I always let them know it's a trick question, so that way they're prepared. But what did you contribute to your salvation? Yeah, yeah. And so all the right answers are usually, oh, I contributed to sin you know, or whatever, and it was God that did it all. That's great, you know, so it's, it's a funny, I actually learned it from Greg Eddings. He, what he used to ask when people, it was an elder I had that another st- uh, ch- uh, church that would ask that all the time. He, he was also the one that always said, tell new members, he'd say, look, there are two kinds of members. There's liabilities and assets. Which are you? <laughs> yes! What a great question! So, he's a financial guy. That was his cup of tea. So I thought, okay, it's perfect. All right, well, good, good, good. So, anything else before we move on? 
So we've covered all of these. We're gonna, next week we're going to do uh, uh, review and application. We'll go back through, go back and look at your notes, which I, I see all of you diligently taking notes. Wonderful. It's okay. Uh, but I have been, by the way, has anybody found it helpful putting these on a PDF and then sending out the PDF as well as the audio file? So you can go back. They're all, on, they're all out there. You can go back and look at those and see those and just kind of review those. Um, so we'll do that next week. Okay? Are we done? I think we're done. All right. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Not yet. Let me pray first, and then we'll go. Do you need to go to the restroom? Okay. Great question. Does that mean Sunday school? Yes. Okay, here we go. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you so much for being with us. We thank you as we've gone through this just to be overwhelmed and wowed again by your majesty, your grace, and our confidence is in you, not what we've done. We thank you, Lord, that um, that Pelagianism officially lost. We thank you, Lord, that Augustinianism somehow, in a sense, won, Lord. We thank you that biblicalism, the biblical concepts have continued to be, be there. We pray that we would be gracious toward each other, toward ourselves, toward those outside, Lord, that we would show them, yes, the bad news, but how the good news is really good news. And I pray that you would bless us in that. I would ask you, Lord, that you would be with... Uh, I pray for the Nichols as they get ready to leave in a week to go on their next sower's venture for a month. I pray that you would bless them, keep them safe. Thank you, Lord, for the ministry they do there. And um, we ask you to be with us now as we move into the sanctuary, as we gather around your feet to worship you. We pray that we would be overwhelmed by your goodness and our hearts would be lifted with joy and in the Spirit to praise your glorious name. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.